0: Hello, this is Search for Truth. It's great to have your company and thanks for tuning in. Brian, our Bible teacher, continues our series today called Who Am I? And in these studies, Brian's reflecting on how the Bible tells us we are seen from God's perspective and to appreciate more fully what the Bible teaches about us and how God regards us. Today's talk is called Deeply Fallen and here's Brian
1: to explain what that means. Thanks and I want to begin with a couple of questions if I may. Does the Bible teach us that we are dead in sin or just injured by it? Are we taught biblically that salvation is a gift of God's free grace or is it something we must contribute towards in order to fully bring about our own salvation? Am I really without hope apart from God's sovereign mercy or do I in some fundamental way select my own destiny? These are some of the most important issues of all, and yet very often nice, respectable people hate the Bible's answer, for the Bible tells us we are dead in sin, that salvation is a gracious gift from God alone, and that without God we are completely, totally and utterly without hope. It's a myth to think that in our own natural state we genuinely seek after God for who he is. We might seek him so as to preserve ourselves from death or to enhance our worldly enjoyments, but not for God as he really is in himself. This is what we mean when we say that we are deeply fallen as a result of our first parents' act of defiant disobedience in Eden's garden at the very dawning of human history. Now sometimes you'll hear the word depravity being used, as when someone accustomed to the Bible's teachings talks about man's total depravity before God. But we have to stop and ask ourselves, exactly what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean the same as when, say, a newspaper talks about someone's depraved behaviour. No, biblically, this is a term that also applies to those nice, respectable people we were mentioning a moment ago. It applies to them every bit as much. You see, when we speak of man's depravity in the light of the Bible's teachings, and after the disaster in Eden's garden, we're referring to the natural human condition as it now exists, apart from any grace God may exert on it so as to restrain or transform us. And so, in the biblical sense, depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as bad can be, but rather Total depravity means that our rebellion against God is total and that our inability to submit to God or even to reform ourselves is total. And so we're totally deserving of eternal punishment. It's hard to exaggerate the importance of admitting this, to admit that our condition really and truly is this bad. Because if we should think of ourselves as basically good, or even just a bit less than totally at odds with God, then our understanding, not to say our appreciation, of Christ's work for our salvation will be defective and wholly inadequate. With this conclusion, both parts of the Bible agree. In the first part, the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah says, the human heart is desperately sick. This was expanded upon later by Jesus Christ, when he famously said in, Mark 7 verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Clearly, The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. You know, people demand evidence, don't they? And that's fair enough. God hasn't left himself in any way without evidence, neither for his existence nor for the truth of what the Bible says. And our topic today, this teaching of the Bible about what we're calling the human condition of total depravity, has to be the Bible teaching for which the most evidence is available to support its truth. Whenever we switch on the TV or internet news or pick up a newspaper, we are, every single day of our lives, confronted with appalling stories of the atrocities of war or senseless violence or utterly inexcusable aggression against defenceless women and children. Who can be left doubting that the human heart is indeed desperately sick ever since that first moral transgression of God's command at the beginning of history. But we need to remind ourselves once again that such crimes and extreme behaviours as we've just mentioned are simply the most obvious indicators of the Bible's accurate diagnosis of the human condition. Even the heroes and the celebrated lives are afflicted with the same condition, although they haven't run to the same excesses, they are still nevertheless guilty of the Bible's charge of depravity. Oh, I realise that might seem strange to you. It might seem unreasonable or even incredulous. But let me clarify, that's what I am saying, because that's plainly what the Bible teaches. Let me, however, try to explain it. Once a preacher was being challenged by a man who was indignantly asking, when is God going to do something about all the evil in this world? Eventually, the preacher turned the question back on him and inquired of him if he was equally anxious to deal with the evil that existed in his own heart. On this occasion, that did seem to silence that particular would-be critic of God. But let me add two things. First, God's reasons, as shared in the Bible, for not intervening in the state of the world, are totally different from any human reluctance to acknowledge and tackle personal issues. And secondly, some people do seem for a while at least to be oblivious to the state of their own heart, especially if they see themselves as helpful, decent living people who try not to harm anyone. This phenomenon is perhaps best illustrated. Orwell describes a wasp that was sucking jam on his plate and so he cut it in half. The wasp paid no attention, merely went on with its meal, while a tiny stream of jam trickled out of its severed oesophagus. Only when it tried to fly away did it grasp the dreadful thing that had happened to it. That wasp and people without Christ have a lot in common. Severed from their souls, but still greedy and unaware, people continue to consume life's sweetness. Only when it's time to fly away might they grasp their dreadful condition. For example, on the night in which the Titanic went down, Major Puchin left $200,000 worth of stocks and bonds in his cabin and collected three oranges instead. He realised they would be more useful to him then. But some, even with their last breath, are oblivious to their state. P.T. Barnum, the circus magnate, on his deathbed asked, How are the circus receipts today? The Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4 people like that as being of a futile mind. In other words, their lives are devoid of God's purpose. He next writes about their darkened understanding in the sense that they are without God's revelation to guide them. He then continues to paint his picture of the human condition, the condition of human depravity, by saying that they have hardened hearts, meaning they are insensitive to God and his ways. Finally, he mentions impure greed and deceitful lusts to indicate how people without God live for self-gratification in some form or other. But this condition is so serious that it's not only in Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul sketches it for us, but also in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Here he says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived Serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Together, these phrases or fragments plumb the depths of our fallen nature and of our depravity before God. Let's just focus on that last couplet that we mentioned, on the hateful and hating. You see, how we react to one another is a reflection of our attitude to God Himself, which may not be so clearly expressed maybe you think that's going a bit too far. Not that many people would describe themselves as militant atheists. And yet, according to the Bible, even the most ardent, unconverted churchgoer and pillar of society is basically at enmity with God. We are spoken of as being enemies in our minds by Paul in Colossians chapter 1. Oh yes, you can do all the right things and say all the right things and yet Without knowing Jesus Christ as your personal saviour, your heart is hostile towards God, whether you suspect it or not. That's why the gospel appeal can be summed up in these words from the end of Second Corinthians chapter 5. Be reconciled to God. We are so deeply fallen that only a total recreation by God will do. The story is told of Joe and Bill. Once they'd been good friends but some offence had caused a bitter feud between them. It had been allowed to go on for years. Now Joe was on his deathbed. He sent for Bill and told him he'd forgive all the insults he'd received if Bill would do the same. So things were settled. Eventually Bill stood up to go. He got to the door before Joe called out, but remember, the deal's all off if I should recover. I want to say to you that God's not like that. God's offer to us is not yes and no. How can we be sure of that? Because a death has taken place to bring about reconciliation. The death of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Listen again to the words of Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself.
0: I was in blindness, away from the Lord,
1: knowing no gladness, living in sadness, until the light of his wonderful word flooded my sinful soul, making me poor.
0: Happy in my Saviour, in my Saviour, yes, I Happy in my Saviour, yes, in, 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 in my blessed Saviour. Trusting the Lord, my sorrow is gone. Happy, I fall on. May I ask, uh, have you been reconciled to God? You know, it's vitally important that every one of us receives God's forgiveness. So, if you're not sure, please seek assurance as a matter of urgency. The booklet, which is the transcript of this whole series of talks, is available free of charge. If you'd like one or more for group study or to pass on to a friend, make sure to let us have your personal address and ask for the title, Who Am I? Now, if you miss any addresses at the end of the programme, at the close, then you'll find them listed inside the back cover of this booklet, so it's useful if only for that. But there are also back issues of other titles which you might like to download via the internet or order through Amazon. Those are the addresses I was talking about and I'll tell you how to do this in a moment but first, here's our postal and email address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, United Kingdom. Search for Truth, PO Box 37, Suraliri, Lagos State, Nigeria And now here's our email address sft at churchesofgod.info As I've said, you can download audio versions of some past programmes on your computer. You go to the address www.searchfortruth.org.uk This is our church website where you can also access additional helpful material. And some titles of Search for Truth booklets are also available at Amazon. Go to amazon.co.uk forward slash Kindle ebooks and type Search for Truth series into the search box. And there you'll find a growing list of transcript books from previous programmes. And once again, thanks for being with us today. We do appreciate your interest in these studies. And next week we have talk number three in this series. I hope you can join us but until then it's very best wishes from Brian and David and our singers and me John so goodbye and may God richly bless you He is preparing a mansion of earth free from all sorrow some glad tomorrow I'll join the loved ones waiting up there throughout eternity with them to be Happy in my, Savior, in my Savior, happy in my Savior, happy, happy in my Savior, in my, Savior, in my Savior, trusting the Lord my sorrow is gone. Happy